0: our series in the book of First Samuel, and uh, I'll be preaching this morning on 1 Samuel 16, and the topic that I, or the, the heading that I chose for this is, The Person God Chooses. Now, uh, my daughter's not here um, this weekend, and she's probably relieved about that. You uh, pop the next slide up there. It's not about her anyway, but uh, um, parenting is never dull. Uh, When our son David was young, around four maybe, he started doing something anyone in normal circumstances would call ridiculous. He started eating our dog's dry kibble. Regardless of how seriously we spoke to him and regardless of how we explained that dog food is for dogs and people food is for people, uh, he continued to eat the dog food. He even told us how good it tasted and how much he liked it. Uh, we, were, <laughs> we were frankly baffled as to how to get him to stop. And then one day, my brilliant wife, wise in the ways of children, had an idea. She asked David again if he really, truly liked the dog food. Oh, yes, he responded. Would you like it for supper? He was surprised she would even offer, but he jumped at the opportunity. Okay, then, she answered and carried on with whatever she was doing, and he went off to play. When suppertime was announced, David came eagerly and sat at his place at the table. In front of him was a bowl of the dog's dry kibble. Mmm. In front of everyone else was a steaming plate of spaghetti and meat sauce, his absolute favorite dinner. His enthusiasm waned a little bit at that point, but he chived on, as they say in the posters. I gave thanks I labored over it so that the aromas could thoroughly waft into his nostrils, and we began eating. (laughs) i got to say, that boy tried hard to keep up the charade. But a few mouthfuls of dry dog food later, and that was all it took, and the thrill was gone. Judy said, Are you done eating dog food now? A humbled nod. Are you going to eat Molly's dog food again? A quiet no. Would you like some spaghetti? Yes, please. Away went the dog food, and we never had to deal with that issue again, and if only it was that easy with adults. Over the last several weeks, we've been journeying through a period in Israel's history uh, where they've transitioned from being ruled by judges to having a monarchy. We've seen how Samuel, the last of the judges and a man in close relationship with God, makes it clear that they, sorry, uh, is wounded at the people's request for a king, but God makes it clear to him, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me from being their king. God, in his grace, warns them through Samuel of the costs of a king. The king will take their sons and their husbands to fight in his armies and to work his fields. He will take their daughters to be perfumers and bakers and cooks. He will take a portion of their crops. He will take a portion of their servants and of their livestock, and they won't like it. And there will come a time when they will cry out to God over the burden that's been placed on them from this king, and he will not answer. It's kind of ominous. But at the time, they were so focused on, hey, this is going to be great. We're going to be just like everybody else. The people of Israel, despite having experienced the good that comes from having God as ruler over them, reject that good and desire something else, something less like our David, who knew what a good cook his mom was, but still chose the dog food. And God, in his wisdom, gives them exactly what they desire, a king like the other kings. That king is Saul. He looks kingly on the outside, but he doesn't measure up on the inside. Sure, he's capable in battle, but his heart does not belong to God. Uh, Sorry, he's impulsive, And he's foolish with his words and his actions. It almost cost his son his life at one point. He's disobedient. He doesn't wait patiently on God, but he does what is wise and right in his own eyes for the short term. And we even see that. There's a little phrase, right, that comes right at the end of Judges. In that day, every man did what was right in their own eyes. And Saul is no different. And the final blow for Saul is his failure to fully obey the command of the Lord regarding the Amalekites. And we saw that last week. As we saw, when faced with his sin, Saul does not repent. Instead, he shifts the blame anywhere he can, especially on the people whom, as king, he's supposed to lead and serve, not throw under the bus. He also excuses and minimizes his wrongdoing and ultimately desires to cover the whole thing up by having Samuel visibly stand with him as a show of support while he worships God. In Mark 7, verse 6, Jesus quotes Isaiah the prophet regarding this same thing, and it's clear that he's not pleased with it when he says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart Is far from me. This is an accurate description of Saul who honors God with his lips but doesn't obey in his actions from his heart. So it's all about the motivation here. But we mustn't ever think that God came to the end of his rope, just gave up and gave in saying, I I can't do anything with these people, so I'll just give them what they want. That's not what God's doing here. God desires for them, his people, to have a heart in tune with his. That's even more true of us, his children. He longs for us to have a heart in tune with his. At Fellowship Oshawa, we desire that you would develop that same heart for God, which is why we're starting a Bible study on the spiritual disciplines. Our sin nature is naturally in opposition to God. That's our default. So aligning our hearts with God's heart, attuning our spiritual ears to hear his voice, and controlling our thoughts, our words and our actions so that they glorify him instead of defying him, it's hard work. It takes discipline. Discipline comes from the same root word as disciple, and it means trainee or one in training. So discipline is training oneself uh, to a certain behavior, perhaps. But the the rewards for doing that hard work are unbelievable, and that's why we're excited about beginning that particular study. I want you to keep this in mind, though. While God desires their hearts, he's not sitting back waiting for his people Israel, or for us, his children, that matter, to align themselves before his plans can be carried out. He's not wringing his hands, saying, oh, I sure hope they buy into this. No, God is sovereign. His plans and his will will be carried out regardless of our response. His people, including us, will simply miss out on the great privilege that comes from working with God to build his kingdom. He's going to carry on doing his thing, his work, his plan, and he's inviting us to come alongside and work with him. But he's going to fulfill his plan because he's God, and he can't do anything else. So now God says to Samuel, enough grieving, Samuel. Now it's time to show you what it's like to be led by God's choice of a king. So let's take a look in First Samuel chapter 16. I encourage you to follow along, but it'll be here on the screen as well. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to that sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So the first thing that we see is that God's king comes from Judah, Bethlehem of Judah. We can mistakenly get the impression from the previous chapters that a king is a bad thing. The people's desire is a rejection of God. The demands of a king are hard and burdensome. And Saul was not a good example of a king at all. So it may surprise you to learn that God's plan actually included a king for Israel. That was his design. And we see that way back at the tail end of Genesis, where Jacob is recorded as giving a word as he's dying, he gives a word of blessing to each of his 12 sons, And we're going to take a look at this, uh, at a few of those verses. It's Genesis chapter 49, if you're interested in checking that out further. But back in 1 Samuel 9, we read this. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, and he had a son named Saul. So Saul came from the tribe of Benjamin, and they were well known for their warlike nature. They were a tribe of men who were archers and slingers. They slung stones, and they were very accurate at that. Sadly, they were also known for their bold defense of their wickedness in Gebeah. I think that's how you pronounce it. Just needed to make sure whether I needed to make this G-rated or not. Uh, I think we're okay. I'm not going to get into all the details in in Gebeah, but here's what happened. Essentially, there was a male traveler from another tribe, tribe of Ephraim. And he came to Gibeah, and nobody would welcome him into their home. So he and his concubine um, were going to sleep in the town square. And an old man who comes by sees them there and says, this is wrong, you can't You can't sleep out, you come and you stay with me. And then it speaks that there were worthless men of Gibeah who essentially wanted to have their way sexually with that man. And the old man refused, and instead they had their way with his concubine. It's a horrible situation all around. There's just so many things that were wrong about what happened. But they they gang-raped and abused her so badly that she died on the doorstep. It's a horrible thing. And as a consequence, message was sent out from the the people of Israel, Uh, they rounded them all up and they went to Benjamin. They said, hand over those worthless men. We're going to exact judgment. And the Benjaminites, I think that's how you would say it, refused to give them up and actually stood against all of their kinsmen in battle to defend this horrible deed that was done. And perhaps that's where Saul learned his own stubborn refusal to repent of his sin. I don't know. Jacob's only word about Benjamin is this. Genesis 49, verse 27 says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. And that's it. That's all he says. It's not exactly something that you warm to, is it? It doesn't sound particularly noble. It sounds ferocious, but you're kind of left a little intimidated by that. Instead, look at what Jacob says, prophetically to Judah. Here's verses 8 through 10 in that same chapter. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, right? That's that holding down thing. So he will be victorious. Uh, Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Wow, he gets such a totally different picture of what Judah's descendants will be like. <clears throat> Clearly, God has already a king in mind, and he will come from the tribe of Judah, not Benjamin He will have a heart like a lion. He will conquer and be victorious. And the people, the people will follow him and give him their obedience. Well, that doesn't sound like Saul. Sounds like David, right? That's David to a T. And we're going to see that, I'm sure, in the coming weeks as we continue in this book of 1 Samuel. But I mentioned to you earlier that scripture, especially prophecy, often has what we call a near-fulfillment. And a far fulfillment. So I made up this terrible pair of slides. We're going to start with this first one. Um, it's hard to find a photograph of King David, since they didn't didn't have cameras at the time. This is Michelangelo's King David, and I made him G-rated with the fig leaf, um, <laughs> just to make sure. It's a, a beautiful sculpture. The point is that as we view this from our perspective in the near distance, if you will, we see David. All of this description. Uh, applies to him but if we take David out of the way then we see something else further down the road and we couldn't see that originally because David was in the forefront and blocked that All right. anyway trying to make a visual uh, for this but here's the idea um, sorry at the time the description was clearly about David but does it remind you of anyone else? Another king who would be born in Bethlehem of Judah. It's Jesus. Matthew 2, verses 1, 2, and 5 read the following. Wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then it goes on to say, For so it is written by the prophet, that's Isaiah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So all of these same qualifications and characteristics are true of Jesus. And if you take a look at the genealogy, maybe you haven't, maybe you have, but Jesus is a direct descendant of David the king. So David is another picture of Jesus. In literary terms, we say that David is a type of Christ. A picture, an analogy, a lesser symbol of a greater truth. That's what a type is. Keep this in mind as we continue to see things in this particular passage. Now, David is already known for his excellent qualities. If we look at verse 18, then we see the following. Somebody talking about David says, "'Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence.'" and the Lord is with him. Wouldn't you like some of those things said about you? Wouldn't you like for people to look at you and say, you know what, That's I've seen this guy, I've seen Josiah, I've seen Beth, I've seen Jamie, and the Lord is with them. I would love for that to be said about me. And yet, David's family doesn't quite esteem him so wonderfully, do they? Let's take a look in verse 4 now. So verse four reads, uh, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, Samuel comes to Bethlehem. The elders come to meet him, trembling. Did you notice that? Any idea why they'd be trembling? anything come to mind? This is like an open forum. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Who Samuel? Samuel is the last of the judges. All right. What was their job? To judge. Judge sin. All right. Keep in mind that just in the previous chapter, he came to where Saul had all of that livestock and everything and just gave it to him, told him how he'd been disobedient. And then what did he do with agog? He hacked him to pieces, right? This was not pretty. It was not clean. It was gory, and it was horrific. And it was intended to send a very serious message about how seriously God takes sin. Apparently, that message had its intended effect. They were trembling when Samuel showed up. They thought, oh, no, what's going to happen to us now? Here comes the judge, all right? And, uh, and instead, he says, it's okay, puts their mind at ease, and the ceremony begins, When they came, this is Jesse and his sons, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now Eliab's name means my God is father. That's a pretty honorable name. Likely Jesse's firstborn, who would have had the position of honor, he must have been pretty impressive to look at since he caught Samuel's eye, and Samuel concludes, surely this must be the one. There's got to be the guy. But look at what the Lord says. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So Samuel's having this internal dialogue with God the whole time. First, we had Eliab, and then uh, they, the others, but here's I want you to notice, take note of what the Lord says. The Lord says, do not look on his appearance, or specifically, the height of his stature. Does that sound familiar? Remember Saul? What was the thing that was said of Saul? He was shoulders and head above everybody else. It was all about his height and stature, and and physically he just looked kingly. It's a rather pointed statement by God. Essentially, what the Lord is saying to Samuel is this, Samuel, did you not learn anything the first time around? Remember how Saul was kingly looking? Remember how he was head and shoulders above everyone else? You all thought he was all that in a bag of chips. And look how it turned out. The Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This gets repeated six times. God is really just driving this message home for Samuel. Don't, don't look on the outside. It's not about the outside. It's about the heart. It's not about the outside. It's about the heart. Bam, seven times guys come by and seven times God goes, nah, not this one either. And what we see from all this is that God's king has God's heart. He's driving this message home for us as well. He intends for us to learn this lesson and apply it to every aspect of our lives. This is that feet on the asphalt kind of thing for us today. He doesn't put the measuring tape around our heads to see how smart we are. He doesn't put it around our biceps to see how strong we are or our physical attributes to see how handsome or beautiful we are or our personalities to see how winsome we are. That's not what God measures. God puts the measuring tape around the heart. And so the question for us this morning, and that includes me, do we have a heart like God's? Do we love him and love his word and love his people? Take a moment to honestly assess your own heart. If that's not you now, then today start praying and asking God for a heart like his. And then start doing what he's already instructed us to do in his word to develop that heart. Okay, there's another shameless plug for the spiritual discipline study. That's why we're looking at that. Because those are the things that God has put in place in his word to help us develop that heart like his. Jesus had that heart. The author of Hebrews writes, When Christ came into the world... He said this, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. I'm realizing, because I'm looking for slides to change, that I sort of changed direction just a little bit. I'm sorry, that is not Derek's fault, that's mine. I'm messing with the poor man's mind. That's okay, we're looking at the passage in Hebrews Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Man, that sounds so familiar, doesn't it? Like, that doesn't sound so much like New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's words of Jesus. It sounds like First Samuel. We can't possibly comprehend the step down that Jesus had to take simply to be a man here on earth. We have no concept of what it was, what it is to be in heaven, first of all. And secondly, to be God's son. We will never be that. We will never be God. There are some that teach that when you become a believer, a follower of Jesus, that you actually become deity. That is not what scripture teaches us. It does teach us that we are redeemed and forgiven and that we have eternal life given to us, but that doesn't make us deity. That's important to keep that distinction. All right, But we don't know what that was. So it's hard for us to wrap our minds around what it must have been for, for God, very God, to pack himself into this very limited, very finite human body. All the limitations that it had, all the exposure, the constant exposure to sin, where in heaven there was none of that. The ability to do anything uh, at any time, and Jesus willfully, intentionally restricted himself in those aspects for a time in order to honor God. All right, we don't know what that was, but... He did it willingly, whatever that stoop implied, right? We use the word condescend. That means descend, come down, and con means with. So to come down and be with us. That's what condescend means. Uh, We can't possibly comprehend the step down that Jesus had to take simply to be a man on earth, but he did it willingly because he had a heart to glorify and obey his father. And just like his father, he had a heart of love toward us, God's children. Desire a heart like that. Don't strive for the recognition of the world. Strive for the honor God places on a heart that loves and obeys him. So all the sons of Jesse pass before Samuel, and the Lord says, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel is like, what's going on? And then he says, are all your sons here? And Jesse says, oh, well, there's, there remains yet the youngest, but... He's keeping the sheep. And Jesse, or sorry, Samuel said to Jesse, "Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here." So they're they're standing, waiting. You know, you can almost hear the do 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 right. And everybody's kind of looking at each other awkwardly, and they're going, "What's the big fuss?" It's, it's David. Right? He's he's gonna smell when he gets here because he's been hanging with the sheep, right? And yet. Uh, Jesse does exactly what he's told, and he sent, and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint this, this one, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the middle of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah, which is where his, his house was, where he stayed. And here's the third thing that we learn in all of this. Is that God's king is a shepherd. So we've seen that God's king comes from Bethlehem of Judah. Uh, God's king has God's heart. And God's king is a shepherd. Do you get the sense that David is not highly esteemed by his family? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sure that they love him and all. Family was and still is very important in the Middle East. But in a system where inheritance goes like this, Double portion to the firstborn, single portions to the children thereafter. David's at the tail end of eight sons. All right, he's pretty low on the totem pole. In fact, it didn't even occur to Jesse to make sure David was brought to the sacrifice and consecrated. He's still out in the field with the sheep. Jesse almost seems surprised that we'd be asking about David. Like, if, if anybody of importance is going to be, all my, all my f- other sons, they're all here. For some reason, David was kind of low in their estimation. Do you ever feel like that? <laughs> kind of overlooked by the rest of the world, you're not really a standout kind of person? Have you ever realized that God's choice, God's favor, often rests on the younger or on the least? Think of Jacob who was chosen over Esau, and Esau was a man's man. He was the bass pro shop poster boy, really, right? Loved hunting and fishing. He was like all hairy, and you know, you can see him in a plaid shirt and the whole thing, right? Drives a truck, right? That kind of thing. God makes Jacob the father of Israel. Think of Joseph with a slew of older brothers ahead of him. I think he was, if I, if I understand chronologically, it's not that important, but if he was 11 out of 12, That puts him way further down the list than David even is. And yet God chooses him to save Israel and the world from starvation. Think of Gideon. Gideon says about himself that his clan was the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh, and he was the least in his father's house. And yet God chooses him to rescue Israel from its enemies. Consistently we see this happen in Scripture. David was the youngest and given the lowliest of jobs, that of caring for the sheep. Yet God chooses him, the lowly shepherd, to be the king of Israel. Blow your mind. In Psalm 89, this is what God says about David. I will make him my firstborn. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Why choose David for this love and blessing and honor? tell you why I think. I think it's because of his heart. David took that lowly position and did it to the best of his ability. In his mind, it was not a task assigned by his father or sloughed off on him by his brothers. It was a responsibility given to him by God. And the way he handled shepherding was to use it as an opportunity to worship the God that he loved. And God used it to teach him all kinds of things and prepare him for an incredible work. If we fast forward to the New Testament, we see some of the parables that Jesus taught. He often spoke of somebody who was faithful in a little would be entrusted with much. How about us? How about you? What about me? And what does scripture say of Jesus, the offspring of David? Isaiah 53 says this, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men. (laughs) Jesus' family and Jesus' neighbors thought he was putting on airs going around telling people he was the Messiah. They they said things like, come on, we know your mother and your brothers. Don't give us all that. He knew what it was like to be rejected, and that's why he can sympathize with you and me when we are rejected by those around us. It's one of the qualities that makes him a compassionate and caring king. In, near the end of his life, when he prayed in John chapter 17, he said this, I have glorified you on the earth, talking, about his, talking to his father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus took a lowly place willingly because it pleased and glorified God. And as we read, as we read previously, God spoke of him as the ruler who would shepherd my people Israel. Follower of God, make Jesus your primary role model. Yeah, David exemplifies some great qualities. David had his failings, and we're going to look at that as well. When you have a job to do, whether it's grand or far less than glorious, do it all to the glory of God. Be on time. Be early even for your commitments. Do what you've said you would do. Don't bail out at the last minute. Let your word mean something. I had a friend whose dad used to say to her each day before she left the house on her way to school or whatever, he would just say, remember your name. He was reminding her of the name she carried. Not that she struggled with Alzheimer's and couldn't remember who she was. Was, remember who you are. People, we need to remember our name. We are children of the king. And we need to act accordingly, remembering whose name we carry, so that we bring honor to that name. That's what that father was getting at, and she remembered that all her life. She shared that with me when she was in her 50s. and That's just stuck with her. Remember your name. Brothers and sisters, let's remember our name. One additional point I want to make. Remember back in chapter 13, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. David was a man like that. And yet David failed miserably. Is it about our performance, what we have to offer God? Not as, as, not as much as it is about our hearts. Yes, it matters that we obey. Yes, it matters when we sin. Yes, there is forgiveness for our sin, and there are also consequences. Ultimately, the eternal cons- consequences of our sin put Jesus on the cross. But God is so much more interested in us as his children emulating him by having a heart like his. Why? Because, again, he looks at us and he sees Jesus. And when we foster a heart like God's, we not only bless and please him, but we can actually be a blessing to those around us in our circle of influence as well. We can have a cleansing, purifying, healing impact on those whose lives we touch. Look at the last verse of the chapter. It says this, Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Did Saul ever change his heart towards God? Do we ever read that he repented of all of the sin? No, we don't read any of that. In fact, it just got worse. He started becoming jealous when he started to see the attention that David was getting, ultimately tried to kill him, and died kind of ingloriously in battle. And it was, it was a, a tragic ending. We don't see any of that. But that's not the point. The point is that David did what he was called upon to do. It was a simple task, to play the, hire, uh, the lyre, the harp. Uh, it's sort of harp-like, I guess. And... Uh, And he was a skillful musician. He was known to do that. And he took the skills that God had given him and he used them for blessing. Regardless of what the response was from the other individuals. And it was a blessing. It benefited Saul. We can use those things that God has given us to be a cleansing, purifying blessing to our neighborhoods. We can love them in Jesus' name. It's irrelevant what their response to that is. Our effect is to simply say, I am being faithful and obedient to whatever God has called me to do. Man, (laughs) the disciples in the first century were just like that. They were faithful to whatever God called them to do. And the word about them was, these guys are turning the world upside down. I'd love for that to be said about me. I'd love for that to be said about us. God used David's obedience and joy in him to be a blessing to the world around him. God can do that through you and me as well and as a result there will be praise and glory to our Heavenly Father and the Savior who died for you and me. Let's just close in prayer. Father, we still so often struggle with our own sin natures. There is that battle within and we are thankful for the new nature that you have placed within us. But we confess that we still struggle with selfishness, with, sometimes with laziness, sometimes with jealousy over what other people have and we don't, and, and all of those things. And Father, you are simply calling us to have a heart like yours, to love unconditionally and extravagantly, to serve those who do not deserve that kind of treatment. Because you have shown grace and mercy and love to us who did not deserve it either. We were your enemies. And when we were in that position, Christ died for us. Father, let us be like that. Develop those hearts in us. Let us desire that. Let us desire to more fully reflect the Lord Jesus in everything that we do. And Father, may we bring glory and honor to your name as your children. Because you are so worthy of it, let me ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. It's a quick discussion question, a single one here. In terms of your heart, what one thing would Jesus gently tell you that you and He need to work on together to take that next step toward being more like Him? Maybe there's something that popped up this morning as we as we were reading through God's Word, something that stands out. Um, you don't have to get like super transparent i suppose Um, do what you feel comfortable with um and then let's just take a couple of minutes and let's pray for one another uh, in that regard let's let's work towards being people who turn the world upside down for for god